Because we're hitting a very important part of the book of Colossians that's dealing with a specific issue that was going on in the book of, I mean, the church at Colossae, I think it's good to once again review and emphasize uh, what the problem was uh, in the Colossian church. And I know you've heard me repeat this, repeat this, but I think we need to make sure we have this in our heads because it makes the text come alive. So what was the Colossian heresy? All right, like Gnosticism, and what is Gnosticism then? Okay, so what you're describing is false teachers, because they're teaching things other uh, than what God's Word teaches, and that would make someone a false teacher. They're teaching not the truth, but teaching that which is false. And Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. All right, they were adding mysticism in the sense that they you know, would have all kinds of weird rituals and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, they wear robes and... Uh, have dark rooms and you know, made it all kind of mysterious and do 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 type of thing, you know. Um, that's some of the, the things they were doing that was pretty um, unusual, but it's their doctrine that, that was the biggest problem. A doctrine that really destroyed theology at its roots. And um, the whole doctrine was based on what main premise? Yes, Roger. All right, all flesh was evil, and all spirit was good, and neither shall the twain meet. There was a distinct separation, okay? Well, that immediately causes two problems. It causes all kinds of problems, but it immediately causes some problems from a theological standpoint. First of all, when it comes to God, what does it cause? What kind of problems does it cause with God? All right. There's no way in the world that God, who is all good, because God is good, and he's all spirit, obviously, he could have no part in creating this world. Because if all flesh and all matter, as they say, matter is evil, then God could have not anything to do with it whatsoever. And so they came up with this idea that there were different levels of gods that kept descending down from the one God, and each one of these gods got a little bit less spiritual, a little bit more evil. So it got finally to an eminence that was evil enough that he could, could create the world, which is crazy, but that's the only way it fits in their theology, all right? So that's one problem you've got. You've got God Almighty not creating the world, but it also had another problem in theology as far as Christology. Was Karen? All right. And you had two wings of the Gnostics that either believed that Jesus really wasn't the Son of God and that if he was flesh, there's no way in the world God could occupy flesh because flesh is totally evil. Or there were others who believed to justify their position that God, uh, Jesus never really came to this earth as a human, but instead he was some type of spirit. He was some type of vision that people saw. As I've told you before, that there's some Gnostic writings that talked about uh, to prove their point, they talked about Jesus, how that he would walk across sand and there'd be no footprints left because he really wasn't there. He was just a figment of our imagination uh, because there's no way in the world that Jesus, being God, could occupy human form. And so you had some different thoughts about that. Well, if you take out Jesus out of the equation, now you've got another problem when it comes to theology as far as Christianity is concerned. If Jesus really didn't come here as flesh, what happened? Or what didn't happen? Right, because where do we get our forgiveness of sins from? 
from Jesus dying on the cross in human form taking our place. He took my place. He is the propitiation of my sins. Okay? And then we couldn't go to heaven. So the Gnostics came up with um, all these different things that only they knew about. Um, I know no, no better way to describe it, but climbing rungs of a ladder that would help you as far as getting rid of the fleshly side of you and help you become more spiritual. So eventually you reach something like nirvana or something. It was weird stuff. And um, there were some aspects of Gnosticism that believed that since the flesh is totally evil, the only way that you could find salvation was to try to defeat flesh as much as possible. And so they would try to deny the, the body as many things as possible and promote things that the Bible uh, certainly did not teach. They also incorporated Greek philosophy into the things that they thought and uh, taught and also incorporated uh, forms of Jewish theology, especially when it came to, to certain rituals and certain um, laws as far as the flesh is concerned. Um, they you know, had their own dietary laws based upon what the Jews believed. And the reason why I want to bring that up tonight, because we're hitting a certain section. I'm getting a lot of feedback. Does that sound too loud to everybody? And the reason why I'm going to make sure we emphasize that again is because of the section of Scripture that we're dealing with tonight. Paul's really going to lay it in thick from a theological standpoint and prove that what the Gnostics believe is absolutely false, and he does it in a very logical uh, and a concise way. And um, some very... Very, very good information here. Um, as with all of Paul's letters, Paul you know, has a flow to it. Paul's letters have a flow to it. And so I think it's always important that we kind of hit the high points of things that he has said thus far to get us where we are in the text. And obviously he begins the first chapter with a greeting uh, from himself um, who wrote the letter and to who he was writing. And it was, of course, at the, saint, the saints in Colossae and we won't spend a lot of time talking about these different things. But then, uh, after mentioning the saints in Colossae, he immediately starts telling them uh, how much confidence they should have in their Christianity. One of the things that the Gnostics did was tell them you couldn't have any confidence whatsoever. That there was always the concern about you needed to improve, you needed to attack the flesh more, you needed to climb, climb more rungs of the ladder. And so, immediately in this letter... Um, he, he points out in verse 5, which is the high mark of the first part of this uh, chapter, and he says, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. He is building up confidence in these brethren that are trying to remain Christians and not fall for uh, this foolishness. And he confirms to them, he says, that you have an appointment already up in heaven, this confident hope you have. That's what you need to cling to. That's what the gospel taught you. And it was all based, as he says in the last part of verse 6, the grace of God. The King James Version says, in truth, but literally in the Greek, it's the idea that you have come to understand the grace of God. And it's almost the implication, why would you give that up? And listen to these men when they're teaching you something opposite from grace, whereas you learn in the gospel this by the grace of God that you're saved. And that's what your hope in heaven is based upon. And then he makes mention, of course, of the fact who told him about the church at Colossae because, as I mentioned before, Paul never visited there, never did any missionary work there, but he learned it from Epaphras. And after making mention of that, he 
uh, goes on and talks how that he, they need to come to the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. They may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. And for those of you who are here Sunday night, I've touched briefly on this for a minute because I thought it was something all of us need to understand and appreciate. But after saying that, how it's important that the church at Colossae keep doing the good things they were doing, don't give up, keep living the Christian life, uh, almost in a reaction to the fact lest they get the idea, well, you're beginning to sound like the Gnostics and legalism, he comes back again to the grand theme of the gospel. And how it is that we're saved through Jesus Christ. And he goes on in verse 11 and tells us that our strength comes from his glorious power, not our own glorious power, but God's all-glorious power. And therefore, we can have patience and long-suffering and joyfulness. And that should cause us to give thanks. And as we talked about last week, we need to give thanks because he has, the King James Version says, he hath made us meet. And what did we decide that meant? I'm sorry? Prepared is a word that could be used there, but there's a, I think even, Karen, your translation might have it. Well, that's worthy is a good word, huh? Qualified. Actual word there in the Greek is qualified, and it means good enough. So he has made us good enough to be partakers, and we talked about how that word partaker means, um, has, carries with it the same idea of allotment. You have an allotment of the inheritance of the saints in light. And it goes on and says, he has delivered us or rescued us from danger, with that danger being from the power of darkness, and has translated us or transferred us or moved us into the kingdom of his dear son, or his son whom he loved the most. And we, as we were closing up last week, uh, we talked about that word translated is an unusual word, but it's a word that people would be, trans, uh, would be familiar with in that day and age. Because it carries with it the idea of when a king conquered a land, they would take the inhabitants of that land and move them to their kingdom. Um, for example, when the northern kingdoms fell to Assyria, the northern the Assyrian king took the people, the Israelite people, out of the northern kingdom and took them to Assyria. When Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah, uh, he took the uh, took the Jewish people into Babylon. Uh, that's the same type of action that's being described here. And it shows you a very uh, beautiful picture in your mind when you think about the fact that we're, because of uh, the grace of God, uh, because of the fact that he has made us qualified and given us an inheritance or a lot, if you will, uh, with the saints, he, because he has rescued us from the power of darkness, there's the idea he has conquered and therefore he can move us from the old kingdom that was the power of darkness and now moving us into his kingdom because he is the conquering king. And so a very, very beautiful picture there. But any questions or comments before we move on on that? All right, but he doesn't stop there. He just keeps building upon this idea. Notice what he's done after he has talked about how that we need to walk worthy of the Lord and to all please him, being fruitful in every good work, increasing the knowledge of God. He talks about how that we're strengthened and because we're strengthened by his power, we give thanks. And the reason why we give thanks is because we have been delivered from the power of darkness and moved into the kingdom of his dear son. And here's the reason why all this happened as you moved and move into verse 14. Here's how this is possible. Someone might ask the question, well, how in the world is this possible? How in the world can a person like me be worthy enough to go to heaven? How can a person like me be qualified to go to heaven as the text says? 
What right do I have to have an allotment, as the text says? What, what right do I have to be moved from one kingdom into God's kingdom or Christ's kingdom? Well, right here, he tells us, beginning at verse 14, he says, in whom, talking about going back to verse 13 and talking about the, the dear son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. There's the reason why. This is how it happened. Everything that we have read thus far, beginning at verse 11 and going down to this point, is summed up right here in verse 14, how this happens. It happens because of what Jesus Christ did. Um, the uh, Gnostics, of course, said that, that um, you had to keep their rules, you had to punish the body, that you always had to um, do what you needed to do in order to save yourself, save yourself from them, uh, save yourself because of what they were teaching, you, teaching them. But Paul comes right out and says, it's in Jesus Christ that we have redemption. And that word redemption is an interesting word. Uh, we use a form of it today. Um, if, I don't know if anybody's ever taken anything to a pawn shop or not. Uh, but if you go to a pawn shop and you leave something there with them, what will they give you? Uh, they'll give you money, but they'll also give you what? A ticket. Uh, some people refer to it as a redemption ticket. You take that ticket in and to redeem, to get what was yours back. Okay? And that's the same thing that's being conjured up in this word, but it carries with it an even greater weight in that the word itself means to, to, to pay the price. The price has been paid. Uh, literally, it's been paid in full. Uh, the point being made, of course, he's telling this to the Gnostics and telling this to the Christians at Colossae and also telling us that Jesus is the one that paid the price. Jesus is the one who has redeemed us. He is the one who has done what is necessary. And um, then he goes on and says, in whom we have redemption through his blood. What is the vehicle whereby all these things take place? How did this happen? How can we be strengthened by the glory of God? How can we be made qualified? How can we have an allotment in heaven? Uh, How can we have any of these things? It happened through his blood. Now, I mentioned this to Barbara and Roger when we were sitting out here a few moments ago. Some translations don't have that there. This year's, yours don't have it. And the reason being is there is some discussion because some of the uh, older texts do not have that in the original. Uh, the King James, as I was telling them at supper tonight, came from, uh, they, uh, came from the, uh, the majority text or... Uh, the the Texas Receptus, as they refer to it, and it had it in that manuscript, and that's the only one that it used. But uh, when the NIV and other translations used a variety of manuscripts, it wasn't found there. So there is some discussion about whether or not it should be there. But the point is, all we have to do is look at many other passages in the Bible and find out it's by the blood of Jesus Christ we are saved. In fact, Jesus Christ himself, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, what did he say? He said that this cup represents my blood, which is what? For what? For for the remission of sins, okay? All right. But I personally, and there's others who are smarter than me, agree with me, that this should be in the text. Because here's the reason why I think it should be in the text. Who was Paul dealing with at this time? 
He was dealing with Gnostics. All right? Gnostics didn't believe that Jesus Christ came here in human form. Or in other words, flesh and blood. So what has he done here if you have it in the text now? He has made a very vital point. That's why I think maybe it was originally meant to be in the text. And some manuscripts had it and some left it out for whatever. And by the way, not get too far off on a tangent. Keeping reason why some manuscripts have things and some manuscripts don't have things is because all those manuscripts are copies that an individual sat down at a table with a pen and had one manuscript and he copied it over to another and made another copy. They didn't have printing presses, they didn't have mimeograph machines, they didn't have copiers. They all had to do it by hand. And you're dealing with human factor here. And sometimes people might have dozed off when they got to a certain part. Or maybe somebody's writing and they said, you know, this would make more sense, even though it's not in the original, if I add this word to it. And so you've got some discrepancies because of that reason. But what's amazing, with all the different manuscripts we have, there's no really problem as far as theological is concerned. But i just bring that up as a side note. That won't be on the test or anything. But notice what he's done. <clears throat> he has, because of his blood, we have been redeemed. And the point that's being made here, Paul is kind of putting it in their face, and he is saying that it is real blood. It is real flesh, flesh and blood. Jesus Christ had a real body. He wasn't a spirit. He wasn't just a vision. He wasn't just some uh, thing that we thought we saw. The way that our forgiveness happens is because Jesus Christ was a real man who really died, who really shed his blood. Um, I, don't know what always, I don't know what always people think about when they are taking of the Lord's Supper, but... What I think about oftentimes is that when we partake of the bread, I think about the fact that that was a real body up there. That wasn't just some story. That wasn't just some legend that we heard about. But that was a real body like my body. And that's why we partake of the bread. And then when we get to the fruit of the vine, I think about the fact that that was real blood that was spilled. And in that blood is the forgiveness of sins, like Jesus said. And so this is a dig, of course, at the Gnostics saying, Yes, he died, and he really died, and he was a real person who really died, is the idea here. Because that's where the redemption comes from, is through his blood. And, of course, the emphasis is <clears throat> that it can't be any other way. And, um, in fact, he goes on and says, even the forgiveness of sins. And the idea of forgiveness here is the idea of, of, canceling, uh, of or canceling uh, a debt. The forgiveness of sins have canceled the debt. And therefore, it was through his blood that he, it happened. And of course, we got such passages as um, Psalms 103 and verse 11. I think it begins at verse 11 where it talks about how that, as far, that our sins have been so far removed. It's like they've been as far removed as the east is from the west, and, um, which is a good visual because no matter how far you walk east, you're never going to hit west. And no matter how far east, west you walk, you're never going to hit east. And that's the picture that the psalmist even paints in the Old Testament about the removal of our, uh, our blood because of, removal of our sins because his blood. But anyway, I've rambled on for quite a bit there. Any questions or any comments? Yeah, yeah we don't believe in transubstantiation as the Catholic Church does. Yeah, no, it's not literal. Uh, it's, it's symbolic. Uh, that's interesting that you... Uh, Bring it up made me think about something. You know, uh, Martin Luther, who was a um, Protestant reformer, one that got the ball rolling, um, who was a Catholic priest, and he, of course, being a Catholic priest, he knew 
that when he performed communion services for the people, and back then nobody was allowed to touch anything but the priest, unless somebody discovered that it wasn't real flesh and it wasn't real blood. And him being a priest, he knew it wasn't. He knew what he had in front of him. And so when he first protested against the Catholic Church, he was against the doctrine of of, uh, transubstantiation. Well, that's a big thing for people to swallow who've been Catholics for centuries and centuries and centuries. And so he struggled with it a little bit, and he decided that um, he came up with a a religious doctrine called uh, Constantransubstantiation, anyway. But it's the idea that that, um, there was still Christ's flesh, but you couldn't tell it was Christ's flesh because it was inside the cracker, if you will, or the bread. And it was still his blood, but it was inside the fruit of the vine, so you really couldn't see it. So it was for, for it was all said and over with, he basically, and I don't mean this in a blasphemous way, but it shows you the ridiculous of his thinking, he basically had turned the Lord's Supper, the first part of it, into a sandwich. You see what I'm saying? He had, he had bread on the outside of it, but Christ's flesh was in the middle of it. And it shows you the foolishness of such a thing. Christ said, this represents my body. This is not me. And that's, of course, something that the Bible doesn't teach. And um, just kind of a little interesting side note there. But good point. Anything else? Right. Well, you remember um, the, in being in the Catholic Church. Of course, I, I attended a couple Catholic weddings and whatnot. But um, there's not a whole lot of doctrine taught from the pulpit. You know, you have mass and you usually have um, the uh, message of the day. But this usually doesn't deal with any kind of deep theological you know, stuff like that. <laughs> and, at the, and at the very heart of transubstantiation is the idea that Jesus is re, uh, sacrificed every time you take Mass. And that was the, one of the biggest falsehoods about it is that you had Jesus Christ uh, every time Mass was performed dying again. And that flies right in the face of the Bible who said Jesus Christ died once for all. And, um, you know, he only died once, but they... Um, that's the reason why we often hear times heard, hear people referring to the Lord's table as an altar. You know, it's not altar is something you perform a sacrifice on, and that's the, where the idea came from. They were re-sacrificing the body of Jesus Christ every time that you did mass, and so um, and a lot of that, of course, down through the years, people kept changing things and even things they thought would be for the good. But you need to always stick to what God's word says. But good comments. Anything else? All right. Well, after establishing the fact that this was done through the blood of Jesus Christ, and even if you leave the blood out, you still got it through Jesus Christ that we have redemption of sins, or in other words, we have salvation. Paul loves to start building on something he just said, and he keeps adding to things, keep adding to things, and now look what he's done. Just in case some of the Gnostics are saying, well, I don't know about that because, well, I tell you what, we'll, we'll go ahead and let him be flesh. And we'll go ahead and say he died on the cross. And we'll go ahead and say his blood was spilled. But if he was flesh and did all those things, then there's no way in the world he could be God. So what does Paul do in the next verse? He says he's God. He sure does. In fact, he says, talking about this same person, he says, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. Well, notice what he does here. He uses the word image. It's the Greek word E-I-K-O-N that we get our word icon from. 
It's pronounced the same way in the Greek, icon, okay? But it carries with it a very special meaning. Icon in the Greek means an exact representation of whatever it is that you're comparing it to. Um, It's like, um, a good way to explain it other than the fact that uh, if you took a photograph of me, um, that's my image, right? Uh, It's not somebody else's image. Um, I may look like somebody else because of the way I might look that day, but literally, if you take a photograph of me, that is me, right? Um, It's not me in the sense that, that that is me real, but it's still my image. And that's the idea behind this particular word. But it, that's not a good, good way to explain it because the photograph falls short. It's the idea that when you see Jesus Christ, you saw God is the idea behind it. And so this word is more than just the idea of image because somebody might see the word image and say, well, he was a facsimile of him or he was someone that looked like him in a sense. No, the word here in the Greek and the word that Paul wanted us to understand was that he is the complete likeness. He's the exact representation. In other words, he is God. Him and God are the same. And he goes on and makes a point here that's so very important. He says, who is the image of the invisible God? Now, why in the world did he decide to do that? Why did he put it that way? Okay. Oh, you can't see him anyway, but now what has he done, though? All right, he's joined flesh with spirit. All right, let me, let me ask you this. The Bible, especially in the Old Testament, talks about the fact that you can't see God, right? God, it's not something that can't be seen. Even when Moses wanted to take a look at him on Mount Sinai, God said, you know, you, you need to shield your eyes, you need to turn away, and I will walk by you, and you'll just... Literally, in the text, it's the idea of you'll pick up some of my glory. Uh, King James is you, you'll see my hind parts, which is not a good way to describe it. But he, means, he means you'll see the trailing end of me. In other words, you can't see me full on. You'll just see as me as after I pass by. And even after that happened, you remember what happened to Moses after he came down from the mountain, just having that one short encounter with God like that? His face shone so bright that he had to cover it up because people couldn't look at him. Okay, Karen, do you want to say something? All right, so basically what Paul is saying here, you can see God who can't be seen. How can you see God who can't be seen? Paul says you can see him in Jesus Christ. That's the point that he's making here when he uses this phraseology. You can see God because Jesus Christ is the exact replica of God who normally is invisible, but now he's been made visible because you can see him in Jesus Christ. Now... Go ahead, sir. And he went on and told those same disciples, he says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And that should have took care of the situation. So Paul makes, once again, a mighty blow here in his points here. He's, first of all, pointed out that redemption is not through what these men say. It's through Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ, he was human, He died on the cross to save us from our sins. And not only was he human, he was God. The invisible God, you now see him in the flesh. They said flesh and and spirit couldn't combine. Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. He is the exact representation, the image 
of that which is invisible, God. Spirit is invisible. Jesus Christ was visible. The two came together in the exact image of God. But then he doesn't stop there. He adds another thing to it and, and digs at Gnosticism again. Because he goes on and says, not only is he the one through whom we are saved, not only is he the exact representation of God because he is God, but to build upon this and also to defeat another tenet of their theology, he refers to him as the firstborn of every creature. Now, we got to stop there just for a second, and we need to talk about that for a minute. Because we look at that, and we immediately think that, look at that word, and we think what? Yeah, so he would be, if you look at it from the way we sometimes think of firstborn, what do we think of? Children. And we think of what, Michael? Oh, well, you're, you're getting to what it actually means, but we normally think of, I'm the firstborn in my family. I'm the oldest in my family. I'm the firstborn. And so you would think that I was something that was, I, came, I came from my father and mother, and therefore I was born, Okay. And some, somebody might read that and think, well, that means that Christ was born in the sense that, um, you know, if he's the firstborn of creation, that means he's the very first thing of creation, right? If you look at it from the standpoint, firstborn of creation, it makes it sound like they're saying that he is the very first thing that ever happened with creation, and that would make him what? A created being, all right? But the word that's being used here is not the word that's used for a firstborn child in the sense of the first one in a family that is born. It's used in the sense as Michael was talking about a few moments ago. And how is that, Michael? Talking about his position, his position of preeminence, how that he is above all things. And the Bible uses this quite often to show uh, how that person who is firstborn has rank. Now, Michael, a minute ago, started going off from what we're going to be talking about right now. But, Michael, what kind of rights did the firstborn have in the family? All right, they first of all got the double portion of the double blessing. The first one, say if you had um, four sons, uh, the oldest son, they would take the inheritance and divide it uh, by eight, if you will, or five, however you want to look at it. They would, he would get two more, one more than all the other brothers would get, okay? It wouldn't be divided out equally among the family. The, the oldest son would get a double portion, okay? And the reason why is because of his rank being the firstborn. But here's the thing that happens in the Old Testament, and it's a good illustration for us today as we look at what Paul's saying here. A person could be the firstborn in a family without ever being the first one born. Because it wasn't about when you were born, it's about what rank or preeminence you were given. We have a very good illustration of this when we look at Jacob and Esau. And with, what about Jacob's sons? The pattern was carried over in his children. Who was the oldest of the 12 tribes? Reuben. He didn't get the double portion because of his sin. It was taken away from him. Next down the line, what about Judah? Nope, he didn't get it. In fact, you go all the way through all the 12 sons of Israel and all of them lose firstborn rights and it finally falls on who? Joseph. And Joseph received the double portion and it was divided among his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. 
That's why the tribes work out the way they do when you look at the way the tribes are as far as the 12 tribes of Israel, how that you can have 12 tribes and, and one of them is Levi who had no land possession. But anyway, long story there. We don't want to get into that. My point is that firstborn here does not mean the firstborn of a lineage. It means preeminence or um, above all. Uh, kind of give you a couple examples of this real quick to show you how it's also used in the Bible. Um, Frankie, turn over to Exodus 4 and verse 22 and read that in a minute. And Scott, read Psalms 89 and verse 27. All right. Moses, this is what you tell Pharaoh. You go tell him that Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now, was Israel the firstborn nation on the earth? No. But God had given Israel, because he had chosen them, the preeminence, gave him a special rank above all other nations. There's the idea there. Now read the passage from Psalms. And by the way, this psalm was written by David, and this is about David that foreshadowed Jesus Christ. But notice what David says about himself. All right. David talking about what God has done for him. He says, God has made him firstborn, highest of all kings in the earth. Talking about David's kingdom. And of course, the lineage and everything came through David. Now, God made David his firstborn. Now, was David the firstborn of his family? He was son number eight. So my point is that when this is used in the Bible, it's not talking about far as birth order. It's talking about preeminence. It's talking about rank. It's talking about special privilege uh, that you get. And even someone who was born first in a family in Old Testament times didn't mean that they were going to be considered given the rank of firstborn. So he is talking about how that Jesus Christ here is the above all of creation. Um, if you're going to try to make him a created thing, you can't because he is above all creation. He has nothing to do as far as being a part of creation because he's above all creation. And to prove his point, uh, he goes on now in the next uh, verse. He talks about, For by him were all things created that are in the heavens. The King James just doesn't have the aspects in the original. That are in, the, that are in heavens and that are in the earth or on the earth visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And folks, I hate to do this to you, but we need to stop there because I want to go through verse 16 and just dig all the way through it and come up with all kinds of stuff we need to talk about. So I'm going I'm to stop there. But any questions or comments as we close? Because I can't get into this and do it justice if we keep going. But look what we've learned tonight as far as the Gnostics are concerned. That this is our salvation is through Jesus Christ. It was through his real flesh and blood that we are saved. And that real flesh and blood was God himself. And so we'll talk more about that next week. But thank you so much for your time.